0: Uh, our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 11, and Galatians 2, 6 through 10. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord uh, will bless you in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of Obey the voice of the Lord your God. Being careful to do all this, you will strictly, strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. Being careful to do all this, all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to take uh, to him and lend him sufficient for his need, for whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother." And you give him nothing. And he cried the Lord against you, and you shall be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and to your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and uh, in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, uh, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And from Galatians 2, 6 through 10. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they, were, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apost- apostol- apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we shall go to the Gentiles and they to, they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, we have today and one more week in this short series that we've been doing called "Zealous for Good Works." And there's a danger when you do a series uh, on good works, even though that phrase is taken straight from Scripture, from Titus chapter two. There's a danger uh, that we focus on good works as a pathway to God, and I hope that I've emphasized enough. But I want to do it every single week uh, that. Good works are not the things that save us. In other words, uh, we are not saved by good works. However, the Scripture tells us that we are saved for good works. Meaning, what God did when He saved us was not just to make us right so that we could have the benefits of salvation, which we do have if you are in Christ You have an inheritance, you have eternal life, you have a life with God now, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians tells you. And and so it is to your benefit, but it's also for the sake of the world and for the sake of the church and for the sake of those who are around you that we have been saved. And the scriptures are very clear that there is that dimension to our life with God. We are saved for good works, and we are called to be zealous for them. That word shows up a number of times, or a couple of different words that can be translated as eager or zealous in the Scriptures, and those are the passages that we've been looking at. We see it here in Galatians 2 today that we are to be, um, like Paul was, eager, that's the, one of the words we've been looking at for zealousness, eager to serve the poor. Tricky topic, though. So before we dive into looking at that this morning, let us go to the Lord and ask for his help with prayer. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that as I've just said, we would not be burden, overly burdened by the law, that we would not be um, feel that, that we are not living up to your standard, that you are somehow crossing your arms towards us. That is not the goal. But we do want to be righteous. We do want to be people who are transformed. We do want to see the the burdens, the proper burdens that you put on us, and, and to delight in them, knowing that we are secure. And so I pray as we come to this topic this morning, I pray that you would help us to have soft hearts and open hands that we would take your word seriously as we look at what it means to be zealous for those who are in need. I pray that even now you'd be placing on our hearts people, individuals, situations that we can be sensitive to and that we can show the giving generosity that has been shown to us in the gospel of Jesus. So we ask Holy Spirit that you would be here and we pray for your help in Jesus name. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you are uh, aware of this, but a couple of months ago, music history was made because uh, there was a song that was released that went to number one on the billboard charts, and I say it's music history because this artist uh, had no prior chart history. It opened up at number one on on the top 100 billboard charts. And so it was music history. What is this song? Well, it's by a guy named Oliver Anthony, or at least that's his stage name. And the song some of you, maybe many of you have heard it. Uh, maybe some of you are like, I have no idea what this is about. but it's called uh, "Rich Men: North of Richmond." And it just took the world by force. It song was everywhere. YouTube was you know, everybody was commenting on it. People were writing articles about it. And if you haven't listened to it and you go and listen to it, I'll give you a warning: there are some choice four-letter words in the song, uh, so be careful who you listen to it around. But this song, "Rich Man North of Richmond," was why was it so popular? It, it, it's uh, it's this protest song. It's an anthem, uh, and at first glance, it seems to be an anthem against. Uh, only against the rich and the influential. The, the rich men north of Richmond, if you need a, a geography lesson, uh, north of Richmond is Washington, D.C. So it seems on the surface that, that this is a, a takedown of the rich and the wealthy, kind of similar to uh, Woody Guthrie and, and Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and the long line of anthem protest songs against the rich. However, Oliver Anthony, he confused a lot of people by also including some criticisms of the poor in the song. If you listen to it, he also criticizes those who abuse the welfare state, saying that we shouldn't have to pay or the government shouldn't have to pay for people to buy fudge rounds. That's the provocative thing that he sings about. And so people don't know what to do with this song. You had a lot of people singing along and a lot of people writing angry responses. Which is understandable because poverty and what to do about it is such a tough issue. And regardless of whether, you know, where you are politically this morning, uh, whether you're more on the left or more on the right, we have many of both uh, in this church who would identify that way. Um, And so. You know, we're not trying to make statements about that, but most people admit, no matter where you are, that that some collective whole, whether that is the government or whether that's our local communities or whether that is churches or some other kind of body, some sense that the collective whole have some responsibility towards the weakest and the poorest members of that community or that society. But most people will also admit that there is... A deep brokenness. There is dependency. There is corruption. There is abuse of the system. And so it seems like no matter where you're looking from, there is always reason for outrage. Seems like outrage is always appropriate, which is perhaps why this song became an anthem for so many different groups, whether those who were vilifying it or were promoting it. Complicating the factor even more is that uh, a couple of different reasons that makes this topic very hard to talk about is that poverty is relative. That's a hard thing. What I mean by that is it's relative to location and also to time. Uh, What I mean by that is this. Poverty is different here than it is in Guatemala. There's a different standard of poverty, how we understand poverty, but it's also different in time. Uh, Poverty today is different than poverty in the 1940s or the Dust Bowl era of the United States. And so that adds a level of complexity to it. There's been a lot of progress in poverty, but there's still poverty. Another thing that complicates this is that, uh, and the Bible even speaks about this very directly, is that there are many different sources of poverty. And so when we talk about poverty, um, what are we talking about? The Bible most often talks about poverty, the poor, through those who, are experienced, who have experienced some kind of tragedy or loss, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner who has no land to return to. There's some kind of social loss that causes poverty. It also speaks about those who are poor because they have been oppressed. In other words, they have been uh, stepped on by those who have influence and power, and they have been disenfranchised from their ability to make money and provide for themselves. And then of course the Bible also talks about poverty as though it is a symptom of laziness. If you read the book of Proverbs, that also is the case. So all this is very complex. And I know we've started out very heavy this morning talking about these things. And I'm not going to address those, I'm gonna stay in my lane this morning, in other words. (laughs) Which may frustrate you, but I think is ultimately the only appropriate thing. We're not talking about government programs or food stamps or what the right political approach is uh, to this question, but we are going to talk about the Bible and what it says to us about our hearts and our hands when it comes to caring for the poor. Paul says here in Galatians 2 and verse 10 that these pillars, James, John, Peter, have asked him to remember the poor, and he says, it's the very thing I was zealous to do, or I was eager to do. Same word that we've been looking at through several of these passages to talk about what is it that God calls us to be zealous for. So the question this morning is this, what responsibilities do we have toward the poor? Scripturally, one of the the phrases that I use often around here, maybe you're familiar with it, um, is that I often talk about being properly burdened or improperly burdened for something. And, and, and that's really kind of always the question. We are not God. We have not been given um, the, the responsibility to change the world. Some would disagree with that statement. But we have been given a calling to be zealous for certain things so that God, through His timing and His sovereignty, will one day change the world. But He uses us. So what does it mean for us to be properly burdened for the poor? And we'll look at three pitfalls this morning and then close with two practices. Three pitfalls and then two practices. Three things to avoid and two things to actually do. So number one, the first pitfall, the thing to avoid, is this whole idea of partiality. Partiality. Let's look at this passage in Galatians that Paul writes to us. In this setting, Paul is, is meeting with the apostles, the so-called pillars, Peter, James, and John, uh, who are in Jerusalem, and there's a discussion, uh, at least there's a question for a moment about what makes you significant in God's eyes. That may be the best way to summarize it. Look with me at verse 6. It says, and from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's talking about uh, the church in Jerusalem, and there's a, there's a powerhouse there. There's Peter, James, and John. The church is, is gathered there, and they seemed influential because they were the inner circle of Jesus' uh, disciples. They were uh, certainly very influential in the Christian world. And so he says there was a moment here we were wondering uh, who, what is it that God looks at? in terms of significance. In the end, he says, God shows no partiality. The word partiality there is just the word for face in Greek. Presence. Face. So the the word means this, in other words. The idea here is that God shows no regard for the face of things. Just the outward appearance. Now, I bring that up now because later he's going to talk about the poor, and that's the exact word that James uses. So James thinks the same way as Paul, because later James is going to write in his book that this is the exact attitude that we should have towards those who are poor, is to not show partiality. Look at James chapter 2, verses 1-5, through five, says this, My brothers, show no partiality. Show no outward face as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's an example of how you might show partiality. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at My feet, have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? You see, James's uh, point is very simple. When we think about those who are wealthy and those who are poor, however you want to define those, if someone is treated differently in our lives or in our church spaces or in any setting that Christians find themselves in, if they are treated differently because they are or they seem to be wealthy, more influential, more well-regarded, better fitting our profile, better fitting into the type of church that we are, whatever that may be, we are guilty of showing partiality. And that is something that stands in contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To show a regard for the face of things. God does not look at the outward appearance, we're told in Samuel. He he judges the heart. And the Bible tells us that spirituality and wealth are not a one-to-one relationship in either direction, by the way. In other words, in the Bible, there are rich characters who are righteous. There There are rich people that are evil and oppressive. There are poor people who are exalted and there are poor who are called out for, their, for whatever reason. Wealth, or the lack of it, is no barometer for the spiritual life. It, there's no correlation necessarily between the two. And so when we come to the poor here in Galatians that Paul is talking about, who are these, these poor people that he needs to be zealous towards? It's actually the poor in Jerusalem. So the situation is, Peter, James, and John are there in Jerusalem. They happen to have a huge population of poor people in Jerusalem, and they're saying, oh, "We give our blessing that you go and be a you know an apostle to the Gentiles, but would you please remember how what we're dealing with over here? That there's so much poverty here." And Paul says. He is eager and zealous to keep doing that. There is a sense of responsibility that he feels even across from his own mission that where he would see poverty wherever there is a need, there is a sensitivity there. And by the way, those are not just words. The Scriptures tell us that Paul sent money to Jerusalem at least two or three times. You can read about it in Romans 15. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8. He sends these collections to Jerusalem for the poor. So it wasn't just words. So partiality is the first pitfall that we can fall into to treat people differently based on their wealth or their perceived wealth. The second pitfall that we can fall into is this. Either uncaring pessimism or unrealistic optimism. Uncaring pessimism or unrealistic optimism. I'd like you to picture here a road with two ditches on either side. And when we think about what we might fall into as the people of God, we might fall into one of these two camps if we are not careful. Uncaring pessimism or unrealistic optimism about our ability to help the poor. Look with me at the Deuteronomy passage that's printed in your bulletin there. With The very first words in verse 4, it says this, but there will be no poor among you. Or we could translate it like this. Not as a matter of fact, but it's a, it's a should kind of statement. It's a, um, to pay attention to this, like, uh, there should be no poor among you. We could translate it. Now go down to the end, to verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. There should be no poor among you, but there will never cease to be poor among you. You see the tension there. There's two ditches. Uncaring pessimism and unrealistic optimism. Uncaring pessimism says, they'll always be poor in the land. Therefore, what can we possibly ever do about it? There's nothing I can do about it. This is a challenge to those who think or reason that the only reason that someone might be poor is because they chose to be which is a popular stance. But the Bible is very clear that while poverty can be associated with laziness, there are far more passages about the social realities of what brings poverty. And again, that's in Israel's context. I'm not saying it's the exact context of the United States. But we have to at least give our hearts to this notion that there are reasons why people are poor that are not related to themselves. And so we need to widen our lenses and say, look, we should have the perspective of verse 4. That there should be no poor in the land. That we should make it our heart's desire. We can't have this uncaring pessimism. On the other hand, to fall into the other ditch, we can't have this unrealistic optimism. Because there will always be poor in the land. And in every generation, every politi- you know, there's a politician, there's a political group, there's a, there is a, a movement. There is a group of educated college students, no offense, <laughs> who might say something like this, now is the final solution for poverty. All we have to do is this. All we have to do is, with the, is this with the, our money, with our taxation structure, with our redistribution of wealth, whatever it may be, the problem with that is that Deuteronomy says there will always be poor in the land, which is something that Jesus picks up also in the New Testament in Mark chapter 14, where he says, the poor you will always have with you. Until the new heavens and the new earth, there will always be poor people. Relative poverty, but still poverty. And what's the problem with this unrealistic optimism? Well, it's an example of what I would call being improperly burdened where you're taking on the perspective of God and you're trying to say I know the solution that he hasn't he hasn't fixed yet but this is the reality of sin this is the reality of the world that we live in that there will be always those who are left out by their own choice or by others choices the third ditch that we can fall into is oppression the scriptures speak about oppressing the poor How? Well, a couple of different ways. One is in a passive way, not actively caring about the poor. So we didn't read it, but just before this passage that we read in Deuteronomy, there are these words, just a few verses before in chapter uh, 14. At the end of every three years, this is God's command to his people. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year, and lay it up within your towns, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, you shall come and eat, uh, shall come and eat, and be filled. This was the law: to set aside a portion of their income, their produce, for those who had no produce. The Levites, because the Levites. Because of an early sin, they, they had been they did not have an inheritance of land, they had no food to produce, and then the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner who also don't have access to means of production Israelites were to give of their produce to care for them and this is a matter of God's law. But sometimes Israel wouldn't do this. And there's examples of this throughout the scripture where they withheld, and, and God called that oppression. That, you, that you're not seeking justice for the poor. That was something that God's word talks about. That sometimes we can do this through omission, through not giving to those who need it. But the second way, the most, you know, probably the most common way that, that the Bible talks about oppression, is through money lending charging high interest on debts to poor people. And when it comes to Israelites or the church, we might say it is strictly prohibited to not care about the person's position before you lend money at high rates to them. In other words, not the lending of money in general, this is a bigger discussion, but the lending for the purpose of of some kind of oppressive means. What could that be? Well, because you know that that, that that interest will cause them to pay everything that they can or most of what they can. That might be a reason. Or it might be because you have your eye on some kind of collateral that if you lend the, this, then they'll default and then you can give the, have the higher value item. These things are prohibited in God's law for God's people. Does this type of oppression still happen today? Of course it does. Of course it does. There are still loan sharks and payday loans and areas that were it not for a lower income, people would not exist. And that's a good bar. That's a good test. Would this industry, would this casino, would this lending institution exist without the presence of poor people putting their money into it? Now again, I'm not removing responsibility for those who do that. I'm simply saying that That this is a pitfall that we can fall into to support and to be uh, in favor of things that oppress, and so we're saying simply this: not taking on the burden of those who do those things unwisely, but to say for Christians we need to opt out. We need to not support, invest. Now I know it's heavy, heavy morning this morning. Thanks for bearing with me. This is your first time here. We don't do this kind of like. Every week, throw the kitchen sink at you. But we want to deal with these realities. I want to tell you now why, before we move on to how. Why should we do these things? Why should we not practice partiality? What if I'm more comfortable with people that are the same socioeconomic class as me? What if I just feel better about that? What's wrong with that? Why... Should I not be unrealistic or, uh, or uh, overly pessimistic? If that's kind of my natural intuition, it's just the way that it is. Why? Shouldn't I get the most I can out of people regardless? I mean, if they make the choice to, you know, to borrow money or whatever, why shouldn't I just take that to the max? We live in a capitalistic country. Why shouldn't I, you know, let that fall, the chips fall as they may? And their answer is because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever you have is a gift. It's been lent to you. Look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. God gives the reason. There'll be no poor among you. There should be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Do you see what the logic there? It's don't let there be someone who is left out because you haven't been left out. You you have this possession, this inheritance, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God and what He has provided you. That's God's giving character. And in this scenario, He says, you imagine yourself to be the poor because you are without Him. You are the poor. The New Testament picks up this same language in 2 Corinthians 8. We read it earlier in our assurance of pardon. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. What we call the great exchange is that we who are poor receive the riches of God and He who is rich receives the poverty that we deserve And He lays down His life. And so whatever riches you have, and I'm talking both spiritually and physically, and I've already mentioned that you have every blessing in the heavenly places. You have a whole life, eternal life, an inheritance. You've been adopted into a family. Those are the spiritual blessings, but you also have whatever you have. The Lord has given you, and it's relative. Some of you have a lot. More than others in this room. But whatever you have, you have because of God's gracious hand. God has had compassion on you. He's opened up his heart and his hand, he's given you generously. And you have. The same promises that Israel had. Israel had the promise of a land. Israel had the promise of an inheritance. Israel had a promise of a strong people. And those are the same promises given to us in the new covenant. We have a holy land. We have a new heavens and a new earth. We have a people. We have a a family of God that we can go there with. And we have an inheritance every spiritual blessing. And so the promises are the same. The grace is the same. It's all of grace. Why should we not fall into these pitfalls? Because we have been given everything in Jesus Christ. And if you have Him, you have everything by God's grace. And similar to what we've said every week in this series, it's that grace that motivates us. It's that grace that's the foundation for how we care for those around us. The things that we're to be zealous for. Are because of God's grace. So let me give us a couple of practices that the scriptures tell us to do positively, not just to avoid the pitfalls, but what should we do? And they're simple: open hearts and open hands. Open hearts. We're talking about compassion here. Look at verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. You shall not harden your heart. What does this mean specifically in this context? Look down at verse 9 with me. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eyes look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. What is going on in this situation? The seventh year that's coming up, there's something going on in the heart. This seventh year was the year of Jubilee, and in the year of Jubilee, all debts are forgiven. And so you can see how this would happen. Hey, it's year six. Your brother comes around. Hey, can I have a big loan? And you start calculating. Next year, the debt will be forgiven. I don't know that he has the ramp, the time to pay this back. You can see how this works. And the scripture says, do not harden your heart against him. Do not be... That calculating. In other words, and this is a challenge for many of us, there may be circumstances to give even when you think or know that it will be abused. There may be circumstances to give when you think or know it may be abused. How often have we abused the grace of God, which was given to us freely? Again, I'm not advocating that we necessarily go out and seek those opportunities for abuse, but know that they will happen. And do not harden your heart, it says. Here are the things that don't belong in the Christian's heart when it comes to giving or lending money, calculating, grudging, judgmental about a situation, paternalistic. I'll help you if you meet my standards. Those are the opposites of a soft, free heart towards someone in need. Here's another test from the scriptures. I call it the John 316 test. If you grew up in church, you might know John 316. Even if you didn't, you might know John 316. One of the, it is the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16, 17, it's often read. It's about our spiritual needs, and it is true. You must believe in Jesus Christ in order to have life in His name. That is your spiritual need. But here's a little test. Just add a one to the beginning of that reference. 1 John three sixteen and 17 is also part of the Christian life. Here's what 1 John 3, 16 and 17 says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, his heart, how does God's love abide in him? See, we are saved by the grace of God, but we are saved for compassion and care for others. Open hearts. We take an inventory of our heart. What's there? When it comes to those who are in need. Secondly, open hands. This is generosity. Back to verse 7 with me. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need whatever it may be this means that we're willing to lend or in other words for our brothers and sisters it is to give because in Luke chapter 6 Jesus tells us that when we lend to those who are in need we should expect nothing in return we have everything in Christ so it's not just our hearts it's our hands It's the generosity that we would give. Not just of our money. We can give time. We can give resources. We can give attention. We can speak for people. And in doing so, we do good works. Not works that save us, but we do good works. Look at uh, in 1 Timothy 6. Just listen to this. I won't have you turn to it. 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age. Now, are you the rich in this present age? I don't know. I looked it up this week. I forgot to write it down. Something like, if you have $100,000 of um, net worth, equity in your house, something in the bank, something in your retirement. If you have $100,000 net worth, I think somewhere around in there, you're in the top 10% of the world. Just put that out there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to be good, good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That which is truly life. You see, generosity points us back to the Gospel. What is life? True life. It's not found in hoarding, in building up, but in Christ-like giving away, in Christ-like sacrificing, in Christ-like Helping of others. That's life. Indeed. How do we have these open hearts and open hands? I think it's by living in a prayerfully open-handed, prayerfully spirit-led kind of way to see the needs that are around us. As overwhelming as it is, and by the way, next week we're going to close out by talking about the overwhelm of all this and where do we even start. With our good works, but let me tell you just a story as I close um, today, because there are opportunities for us everywhere. So it was two or three weeks ago. I sometimes start prepping for sermons, you know, several weeks in advance. I don't do it fully, but I kind of start thinking about things and reading the passage. And I was reading this passage about two or three weeks ago in the morning, and I just was I was burdened with all these questions. And one of the questions that I had was, Lord, how do we know who to help? There's so many great needs out there. How do, we, how do we know who to help? And that afternoon, literally that day, I get home, and someone's car literally broke down in front of my driveway. <laughs> like right there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he goes to the neighbor's house, and nobody answered the door, and we answered the door. And he told us, you're the only one who answered the door. And my, my oldest son and I Pushed, helped push his car to the side, um, and he told me that he doesn't have money for a, for a cell phone. He has a cell phone, but it's not it's only connected to Wi-Fi. He doesn't have a plan. Could he use my phone, which I, of course, gave him? He couldn't find anybody to come give him a ride, so we offered him a ride. We took him to where he needed to go, and he tells me more of his story and, uh, and how that car just got out of the shop that day, and it's been in the shop for weeks because he didn't have the money to picks up that car. Um, and so he had to wait until today, and then it comes out, and it's not even fixed. So he had to get the car back. Anyway, we take him to his, to his, uh, his girlfriend's place, and, and they, they work it out, and they get it back to the shop um, on their own. And I'm not saying that story because I'm no hero. Look, I read that passage this morning, okay? How could I stand before you and say these things if I didn't do something? So there was a lot of, there was pressure there, right? Okay? So it's not, the point is, The point is not that I'm a hero. The point is this. If you ask God to help you to know how to apply His commands to be zealous for the poor, He will show you who to care for. If you open your heart, you open your hand, if you lean into the Gospel of Jesus Christ that I've been given everything and and the feeling of abundance overwhelms you and, and you think, where can this spill over? God will give you those opportunities. He may literally put someone on your doorstep or in your house. When you see that person or when that person texts you or that person calls you or that person shows up at church or whatever it may be, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we've been given everything in Jesus, will soften our hearts and open our hands. And we will find inside of us because of the gospel, an eagerness, a zealousness for this, to show God's care for the poor, whoever they may be. Let's pray.